our DJ that was up there, it wasn't Muggs. Muggs was on stage with us. Why? I don't know. He should have been on the turntables because then the plan would have actually gone through as planned, right? So what happened was he ad-libs and decides, they told me that we couldn't smoke this joint, but we ain't going out like that. Boom. Wow. So we're all like, oh shit, he started early. And then in the last verse going into the chorus, the DJ's supposed to start unhooking wires. The rig is just a dummy rig at this point for that song. And we're waiting for him to pick the shit up and start throwing it down. He doesn't. He gets scared because he doesn't want to get in trouble from the Saturday Night Live production staff. So he freezes. Muggs notices this and he goes over to Eric Bobo's congas and he just sort of pushes him over. So one shot you see Bobo playing all his <laughs> percussion set. Then they cut back to Bobo. He's only got one conga because Muggs pushed everything over. This is Nas. You're now listening to The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop. What's up, everyone? This is your co-host, Minya O, a.k.a. Miss Info. It's impossible to overstate how unique and pioneering Cypress Hill has been in their career, which spans over four decades. We had a blast talking to Be Real and Send Dog about how making rap was their choice to actually walk away from gang life. Sendog also shared the mental and physical strain of touring the world. And then we got Be Real to break down his signature nasal flow. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. In the entertainment business, there's always that push to follow trends in order to make money. But it's the real artists who don't have to copy what's popular. Groups like Cypress Hill have never followed trends, whether indulging in marijuana or representing their Latino heritage in their own way. People don't just react to Cypress Hill's dope music. They can feel their authenticity. Do you remember when you first heard how I could just kill a man? Yeah. I didn't know you could say that on the radio. Right. right. <laughs> I didn't know you could say that. I thought y'all was going to get in trouble. I thought we were. I, I could not believe it was blowing up. It's one of the most incredible records ever. You turn it on, it just takes you. You're like, this is the most craziest. And it was that guitar yeah. and that thing, the electric guitar or whatever. It was like felt public enemy, but mm. newer. It felt Latin. For some reason, yeah. very. it felt like, oh, shit, this is the hardest record ever made. It was like every man rage, 
every yeah. person could yeah. relate to just almost snapping and wanting to just yeah, kill yeah. everybody. Right. Yeah. It, I remember going to clubs and that joint would come on. All right. Forget about it. It shifted rap. And I remember like, oh, wow, we could go hardcore with this. They showed us we could do this shit hard. I remember one time, there's this big tour, Smoking Grooves. Right. If I'm not mistaken, you guys were headlining. We were co-headlining. Co-headlining. Right. But look, there wasn't rap. That thing didn't seem like a rap tour. That was like... Rock Because at the time, rock okay. had the biggest shows. All the stuff you see now with, yeah. say, a little Uzi jumping in the crowd and all that stuff was... These uh, Lollapaloozas and, yeah. and smoking grooves. You would be lucky to get on that. So only a few rap artists got on there at yeah. all. Yeah. Cypress was able to finesse that and got on there. And I think you guys had a giant prop of a burning yeah. joint. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yo, yo, I'm watching the audience. Uh -huh. We're experiencing Woodstock. It was Jim Morrison. Right. It was hip hop. It was rock. It was... East Los Angeles, it was everything on stage at one time. Hmm. And I'm like, they figured it out. You know. They figured it out. It was crazy because we were going with it. We had no clue any of these fucking doors were going to open for us. We didn't know how people were going to react to this shit. And the marijuana craze was just building back yeah. up from since the 70s. Right. Was, it was like. It was on the bubble. It was coming. Yeah. But it was such a unifying force, right? Because you got the college kids, the white boys, the rockers, the Everybody heads. Everybody smoking yeah. papers. We was yeah. blunts on the East Coast. And these guys uh, making the records that was tailor-made for us. Yep. I'm chopping up the title. Smoke is the way to walk. Stone is the way to Stone walk. Stone is the way to walk. Yeah. I mean, dog, that one right there trippy. was like... Super trippy. What? <laughs> Super trippy. <laughs> what? This is our anthem. So, yeah, that, that's how it hit me. To answer your question, that's how Killer Man hit me. You know what I mean? I knew it was a movement. You know what's crazy is that in terms of the production, Muggs was very influenced by the Bomb Squad. I mean, Public Enemy was everything to us. A lot of times back in the day when people would do the first interviews and we were like, well, we're Public Enemy inside out. Send Dog does the sprinkles like flavor oh. in reverse, but he's got more verses yeah. than Flav. He's the second rapper, wow. not yeah. the hype man. Yeah. But it was just the flip. It was throwing the high pitched voice out front in the low monotone, backing it up. Sin, when you said, I could just kill a man, I yeah, said, no. Oh my God. <laughs> he was like the what? echo, like the I boom. Said, yeah. I said, Man, the cops is coming to get those guys. <laughs> Cause it's yeah, and then the video. I said, "No, they kill people, man. These guys don't play, man." <laughs> I was like, you know the funny thing about that. And I think that we developed that style, yeah, like imitating Chuck and Flav on the radio when the songs would come on payday, and Be Real would rap the Chuck D parts, and then I would do the the Flav parts in that huh. voice. Wow! Okay. And it just somehow morphed into our own identity. But that's the beginnings of the, how that style came about. Yeah, it was pretty much like I was rapping in this voice, yep. right, early on. And we just listened to it, you know, when we were filming our documentary. And crazily, I sound like Special Ed. Crazy, right? I thought I would sound horribly bad when we listened to that shit back. I was like, fuck, I sounded like Special Ed. What? That's kind of cool. Right? Flow. All right. Yeah. But at the time, <laughs> Muggs ice cold as he is because he's our brother and we always put our ego aside when we work together, especially in the early days because we had to trust each other, right? 
he was like, hey, not for nothing, but you got to do something about your voice because if not, you just going to write raps for Send Dog. I'm like, oh, shit. Wow. <laughs> and so immediately <laughs> Ramel Z came to mind. I'm pitching my voice up and real estate was the first joint that I pitched my voice up. Then we got on to Killer Man and Killer Man was three songs that we pieced together to make one. It was a verse from this shit over here, over here and over here. And Muggs came up with the beat. He was like, hey, that piece from the other song, put it here and let's get those other two pieces and lock it in. And when we got that first verse, that's when I started writing the second and third. Mm -hmm. And then he starts piecing all the break and the bridge and all the crazy sounds that go into it. And that was like the second song that put the stamp on me using this voice for the rest. Explain to everybody, when you say I pitched my voice up, we're hearing your regular speaking right. voice. So if you can kind of show me what you mean. All right. So this is my regular voice, right? Mm -hmm. But if I was to be doing a verse. You take uh, it into uh, nasal. You like no, make it. People think that because we ah. always called it nasal, but it's it's from down here. It's like, don't miss out on what you're passing. You're missing the hooda of the funky Buddha. Uh, right? And so still. when people would talk to me, they're like, where the fuck is the guy that raps like up there? Like, I'm right here. Wow. <laughs> That's the Ella's voice. Hey, listen, it took a minute to get that right live. I mean, for the first three, four years, my shit sounded horribly because I was trying to, you know how it is when we get out there in front of a big crowd the first time, we're excited and now we're yelling our vocals. Right. And by the second day on the tour, it's mud. Mm. You know, you sound like horse and shit. I still do that. I still get so excited, I get hoarse. Hmm. Sometimes during the show. So I turn it down to a whisper to get my voice back. Yeah. We thought Cypress was New York dudes. Right. When we saw the name, we was like, yes. Well, didn't you think Cypress was, was Brooklyn. from Brooklyn? Yeah. 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 A lot so of we was like, yes. And then when we heard it wasn't, it made me go, well, there's a Cypress in L.A. Or these guys just know the music so well. Yeah. Both. <laughs> they know East New York. <laughs> Both. All right, so let me tell you how that happened, right? So he lives on Cypress Ave, right? And before... Send Dog. Yes, uh -huh. Send Dog lived on Cypress Ave. We were called DVX in the beginning, right? It was devastating vocal excellence. That's... Wow. That's hip hop. That's, that's so hip hop. <laughs> it was straight up hip hop. And... Don't leave out the... Rough. Yeah. <laughs> when we got to deal with Rough House, we were like, we can't keep this name. You know, we need to do something else because it's just not it. So <laughs> Muggs is from New York. He's from Flushing, Queens. Um, Queens in the building. So mm -hmm. one third of Cypress Hill or one fourth is Shout it Shout out to Muggs. Um, was from New York. So that's why we get the East Coast sort of taste in the music. Like yeah. our flip was not West Coast in terms of how the music was made because Muggs wasn't going to do anything that sounded West Coast. That's just not the guy he was, right? So he brought the East Coast influence to us. And one of the first things that he brought to us was the Wild Style record, which featured Ram LZ and K-Rob, a battle there, and then another joint by Ram LZ. And when you watch, you know, Ram LZ's got the sawed-off shotgun on stage, he's got the trench coat, and then he does a shout-out. I shot up town to Cypress Hill, broke into a Def Seville, some shit like this, right? Oh. And we're like, Cypress Hill. We're wow. Cypress Avenue. Fuck it. We're going with Cypress Hill because Ramel Z said so. And that was one of my first influences because yeah. that's that's who showed, like, 
indirectly how to pitch your voice down here and then go way up here. Interesting. Yeah, because his rap style was down here. This is the brother they call the Ramel. And then he would flip it out of nowhere and be up on the high register like the, oh, the way my voice yeah. sounds. And I got that from him. And that was due to Muggs bringing us all those old school East Coast joints that we weren't getting on, on K-Day. You know what I mean? You were getting like the mass we were, yeah. releases and then he was getting deep. Yeah, into, he was getting into the, the deep stacks. shit. Okay. So that's how we got Cypress Hill was through Ram LZ shouting out Cypress Hill. And we thought, fuck, well, we live, we're on Cypress Ave. We might as well just call yeah. ourselves Cypress Hill. And it made that connection because the East Coast cats loved us for that shit. And then when they found out that we were from the West Coast, they still had the love. It was too late. This is amazing, man. We all started on the same label. Myself, Cypress Hill, also the Fugees. Yeah. This label called Rough House started by Chris Schwartz. And uh, he had a vision. We're here to represent and we've been on a journey. And I got to say, I take my hat off to you guys with the journey. I'm sure you was watching me while oh, I yeah. was watching you. Absolutely. And going, wow, yeah. look at these guys. Oh, my God. And how I could just kill a man was the first thing I heard from you guys. Yeah. I know I was hearing some stuff on Stretch and Barbito. Was that the first single? Yeah, there was a snippet tape that Sony put out first. And then the actual single was Double A Side, Funky Phil One, and yeah. Kill Man. For marketing purposes and safety, you know, Sony and Rough House wanted to put out the less lethal, <laughs> less controversial. So they put out Funky Phil One. We did a video and stuff like this. And yeah. um, it was kind of going slow. But because it was a double A side, DJs knew they could flip the record and all the mix show DJs, especially Stretch and Bobito, they they were like some of the first to flip it and play Kill a Man. And uh, that's when it started picking up. And then uh, Chuck D and them were working on the Bomb Squad and Chuck were working on the Juice soundtrack, doing the score and all that. And they selected How I Could Just Kill Man for the main pivotal scene there. Mm. And that's when it started getting major run from the movie and the mix shows. It exploded. And I do remember following you because there was a, a new music seminar and you were performing at one of the, the showcases. And I was hanging out with Ice-T up in, in the seats watching you get down. And we were both like, oh, man, he's going to come kill the game. Right? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Salute. Those were fun. What? Dangerous sometimes, but fun. Yeah. Well, yeah. especially when the West Side would come through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't <laughs> know how to act sometimes. And then the funny thing is things would pop off and you wouldn't read about it until the source like three months later. Yeah. <laughs> like I loved going to that shit because, I mean, for me, I grew up off of New York hip hop. That's what Send Dog and I gravitated to immediately. Like Run DMC first, then the avalanche of everything that came after. So we was out there absorbing the culture and being with everybody who was like-minded, the love for hip-hop and the want and desire to do it. Mm. It was just a great culture to see everybody there trying to get theirs and push their albums and push the groups and all that stuff. It was a great time. Can you guys tell us about your hoods, where you're from, and coming up listening to Run DMC and stuff, and then getting to New York? Oh, yeah. Well, Send Dog's from Cuba, but moved to Southgate. I moved all around Los Angeles, but when I met Send Dog and his brother, I met his younger brother, Melo, first. He brought me on over to 
Cypress Avenue where Mellow Man Ace. Mellow yeah, Man, Mellow Man Ace. Ace. He yeah. was out before you guys. Yeah, he was. Yeah, uh, he was. yeah, he was out two years. Was it said like eighty eight yeah, or just over two years? Just yeah. over two years. He did his thing, and then we came out. You know, Southgate is on the Lower East Side of Los Angeles, just over the tracks from Watts in South Central. And it gets crazy. Not as crazy as over the tracks, but it was getting crazy here and there. And we grew up there and our love for hip hop was cultivated there. Listening to Run DMC and the Beastie Boys and Eric B. Rakim, Big Daddy Kane. LL. LL and Public Enemy, KRS, Beastie Boys. Yeah. I mean, these were all the things that we were excited about. And we were listening to all this stuff on K-Day. 1580 K-Day, which was the hip-hop station back then. It was an AM station. And we would just be on Send Dog's Block listening blasting to... Blasting music. Blasting music and having dreams. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wow. Eventually, yeah. I sort of broke away and I got involved with gangs and I was running around crazy style like that. But Send Dog and Mello, eventually when we would meet Mugs, they were still sort of actively doing stuff. And that's how Mello got signed. And I came back in later, but it was grimy times, man. I mean, <laughs> you know how the struggle is when yeah. you're coming up and you got nothing. Yeah. You got to believe in you and what you're doing. And at that time, I was so indoctrinated in gangbanging, I lost sight of the music for a while. And I always thank God at the fact that Send Dog, Mello, and Mugs brought me back in because, mm. yeah. you know, I was deep. Thank you, Send Dog. We knew that we needed you somehow, some way. And we were like, we got to get that guy. We got to get him. But we would go to the hood to go get him. And he didn't want to come. He'd be like, man, there's a war going on. I can't leave. Wow. wow. We kept on going back and going back. And one day we got him. Look, we'll, we'll bring you back. Just come and drop this song up in the apartment up in Hollywood at Muggs' place. And we'll bring you back tonight. And he said, okay. We took him in. And that was the last. He didn't go back to the neighborhood for, I don't know, Forever, I don't think that was the beginning yeah, of that was what became, you know, be real was born that day. And we kept the song. It was real estate. That was the song that he did. Yeah. On the first album. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, when I got brought back, they were working on Mello's album for Delicious Vinyl. And they asked me to write two songs because I was decent at writing. My rap skills sucked at that time, but my writing was all right. So they asked me to write two songs, and I'd spent time in the Delicious Vinyl studio going through it with Mello and all of us that were there. Muggs was producing that album in the beginning. And I got bit by the bug. I was like, oh, shit, you know, I might be able to do this again. And then being around all the other artists that were there that were coming through the studio, well, Mello was recording his album, like Tone Loke, who was cracking at the time, Young MC, who was writing some of that shit for Tone Loke and who he had it cracking. It wasn't necessarily my cup of tea of hip hop, but I respected what the fuck he was doing and seeing all these dudes coming in there that were cracking, it was like motivating, you know what I mean? So I wanted to be there more than I wanted to be on the corner, you know, and that sort of was the transition. And then I, I started getting momentum from it. And then I wrote that first song he's talking about with Mello, me and Mello wrote that. That was the beginning of me like saying, okay, I'm going to put this shit right here behind me and focus on this because I can't do both. These dudes took too big of a chance to bring me back to help do the music. So, you know, I, I left it behind. Unfortunately, my boys, my circle that I banged with, they understood that and were in full support of it. So, you know, 
I never caught flack for leaving or anything like that. And it wasn't like that I was no longer a part of the set because that would never be, right? Because I wasn't saying, hey, I'm done, I'm leaving. My thing was, I'm going to do something better. Hmm. And they understood that. They didn't anchor me down to the streets. I could have did that for myself, you know, because mm -hmm. a lot of us, habits are hard to break, especially when you're as close as I was. I mean, I was in this shit and I didn't think I was coming out because I didn't want to come out. They helped me to realize there was something more because I was stuck. Like he said, they would come to me and come on, let's go to the studio, you know, help get down over here and be like, man, we ain't going to make no money off this rap shit. Y'all are crazy. Hmm. I ate all my words I ever said <laughs> to these guys in doubting that. I decided to take a chance on myself and take a chance with them because they took one on me. So I just left that shit behind. And, you know, I still got my my day ones down there that got my back no matter what. But I don't got to go be soldiering or be the general down there. Hmm. I don't got to do none of that because realistically I left that and... This is now my path. It's been my path. So you got to just be willing to let go. When you were gangbanging, did you take a lot of that mentality into your music and express it? Like, how do you guys come up with Kill a Man? What's the inception of that? And what were you guys really addressing? Well, you know, we were addressing everyday life for us. That Anyone who lived in the type of streets we live in, and we know that's everywhere. You know, it could be found anywhere and everywhere. And we were being the voices for them and being the voices for ourselves, you know, telling people what we were experiencing and also that there is a path out. Like we were here, but now we're over here. It's possible. You don't got to get stuck just doing this. You know, if you look at the opportunities in front of you and you decide to take a chance on yourself, there's a way out of that. That's what our music was always reflecting, I think, is showing, hey, this is the gritty shit that exists, yeah. but there's a way out of it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ah. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I wanted to bring something up that when the songs first came out, the other part that was so new and fresh was that it sounded so Latin. It sounded right. distinctively that, right? And then when we saw what you guys looked like, you know, I'm sure a lot of that was the marketing. But then it ended up just like a blanket, oh, they're Mexican. <laughs> and you guys yeah. are not no. actually 
Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so, culture is there. Yeah. Right. The culture is there, but Send Dog, you yeah. are Cuban American and be real, you are also yeah. Cuban American and Mexican American. Yeah. And then Muggs is just He's Italian American. White guy from Queens. Did they just basically say, okay, and you guys are just gonna be like, let's just go with this? Well, what happened was originally when we got signed, the first song that they ever heard was Send Dog rapping in full Spanish. That's what got their attention in the first place because there was really not anything else out there like that. I mean, previously you did have Kid Frost and Mellow Man Ace, but they were rock and Spanglish. Neither of them had done a full, complete Spanish song yet. I don't think. Am I right or wrong on that, Sin? No, you're you're right about yeah. that. That's so correct. so the record company was excited. They were like, oh shit, Spanish rap. We can totally do this, right? But we hung out with Frost and we hung out with Mello, obviously, because that's Sendog's younger brother. We did shows with them. We rolled with them for several years, seeing the mistakes within management and the record company on how they tried to market them to a market that wasn't yet there. Mm. Instead of just marketing them to hip-hop fans in general, they tried to make it a Latin-based market, and it wasn't there yet because most of those Latin folks weren't listening to hip-hop. Some of us as kids were, but not as a whole. So you're trying to put them in a space that doesn't exist, and that was key for us to witness because we didn't allow Sony or Rough House to do that with us. So we get this deal based off of that Spanish song, but we take that Spanish song away. We don't use it. And we decided we're not going to allow them to exploit us as Latin rappers. You're just going to exploit us as Cypress Hill hip-hop group. Wow. Right? And what people get from it will be this Latin flavor that we sprinkled throughout. So you got the Latin lingo song and the Tres Equis, which was, it was a Spanish song, but it wasn't the one they wanted. Wow. It's a very explicit song that Send Dog wrote about an experience he had with a former girlfriend and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> they felt that would be the lead narrative is that we're Latin hip hop and yeah. this and that and try to create a new market. But we were like, nah, we're just going to be a hip hop group and we'll sprinkle our album with this Latino flavor because that's what we are. But we're not going to allow anyone to exploit that because we don't want to be put in this box that no one can open or no one wants to open. We want to be out of the box. And considered a music group as opposed to just a Latino music group. We know what we are and we're proud of it, but we knew that that was certain death at that time, that that was, you're going to be on the shelf. And fortunately they believed in how we approached it and they actually backed us up to Sony and Rough House credit. They let us do our thing without that being the main narrative and it exploded for us and it worked out better because we didn't play ourselves out trying to, exploit that were Latin to a market that was not there yet. And eventually it kicked in the door for that open. Yeah, it's almost like you created the market by existing without a lot of that pigeonholing, right? Yeah, because if you came from the West Coast and you were a Mexican or a Latin rapper like ourselves, you were expected to sound like Mellow or Frost. And we weren't going to do that. Or be pop like Gerardo. Yes, and we weren't going to do that. We were geared different. And we had an ace up our sleeves with Muggs, who was from the East Coast, who knew the culture slightly better than us and sort of produced us to go in the paths that we went. And that was key. You know, the fact that Sony allowed us to make our path and just back us up. I mean, shit, that was everything. And to Chris 
Swartz and Joe the Butcher, they were our main advocates. Whatever these guys want to fucking do, let them do it. I want to get high. <laughs> yeah. So high. I thought it was going to be all murder, murder. Because I was like, from this first single, then you guys had that marijuana thing going, man. You guys were swinging the sword for the cannabis business where it is today. You were the advocates for free love of marijuana everywhere. And taking the lumps for the oh, wild, yeah. wild the west. Yeah. And going with it, man. Did you think at some point that you was going to get too high and mess up <laughs> everything because we're fighting for this thing and the politicians are going to yeah. come for you and your record company is going to be like, yo, man, they didn't see the future. Yeah. You guys knew the future. You know, I did definitely get too high many a times. Well, <laughs> Muggs lit up oh, yeah. on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, they banned us for life for that. <laughs> for life, though. Like, yeah. now it's legal. SNL, it's time to lift that ban. Yeah, lift the ban. You know what's crazy is we always tell the story on how that got botched, right? Because realistically, our plan was something different. Muggs lit the joint at the beginning of the song, which was not supposed to happen. What was supposed to happen was we're doing the song, and what we were doing at the time was like The Who, right? I don't know if you know about The Who, mm -hmm. but The Who was this legendary band back Rock in the band, 60s, yeah. 70s, 80s, whatever. And they would destroy their set. Like after they were finished the last song, they would just totally destroy their equipment. Jimi Hendrix did it too. Mm -hmm. But The Who was really <laughs> known for it. Yeah. And so we were like, fuck that. We're going to go out like The Who because it's something that we had been doing Leading up to that performance, we were smashing our turntables and people were losing their shit because they're like, fuck, they're smashing their set. What happened? Yeah. And it was just a part of the show. So we're like, we're going to give that to Saturday Night Live, right? We're going to destroy the set. And this is crazy. Our DJ that was up there, it wasn't Muggs. Muggs was on stage with us. Why? I don't know. He should have been on the turntables because then the plan would have actually gone through as planned, right? So what happened was he ad-libs and decides, they told me that we couldn't smoke this joint, but we ain't going out like that. Boom. Wow. So we're all like, oh shit, he started early. <laughs> right? So Premature. We're doing the set. Ignition. And then in the last verse going into the chorus, the DJ's supposed to start unhooking wires the crowd doesn't know that the playback is on something else. Right. The rig is just a dummy rig at this point for right. that song. And we're waiting for him to pick the shit up and start throwing it down. He doesn't. He freezes. He gets scared because he doesn't want to get in trouble from the Saturday Night Live production staff or whatever, right? So he freezes. Muggs notices this, and he goes over to Eric Bobo's congas, and he just sort of pushes him over. So one shot, you see Bobo playing all his percussion set. Then they cut this back is a to mess. Then they cut back to Bobo. He's only got one conga because Muggs pushed everything over. And it was interesting nonetheless. But had it gone the way we wanted to, oh, we would have got banned either way. But it right. would have looked so fucking cool. I love stories like that. Yeah. That's fearlessness. That's truth. Being true to you and saying, fuck this SNL, fuck this TV shit. But instead, oh. it was kind of like failed anarchy. It, it, <laughs> no, yes. but, you know, being banned is cool. That was the cool part. <laughs> Come because on. Yeah. That added to the legend, I guess, right? Oh, right. Man, they got banned from SNL because we're on an extensive list of great groups that got banned from SNL for this, that, or the other. Like Sinead O'Connor, 
you know, she tore the picture oh, of the yeah, Pope. yeah, the Pope. For life, she's banned. Rage Against the Machine, American Flag Upside Down, banned for life. Cypress Hill, smoking at the beginning of the song. It's a badge of honor. Banned for life. Yo, but their band is coolest. The Definitely. coolest. See, because in the future, here we are, 2022, where the cannabis thing is just through the roof. All these things are changing. That band needs to be lifted. Cypress has new music. They could come back on SNL. It'd be a big thing. That's right. It'd be a big thing, man. We, said it here we first. wouldn't try that again. Would we? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah, I mean, look, weed was a, a part of our everyday lifestyle. You know, we read the High Times magazine. We looked at the centerfolds with all the great weed that we wished we had. And centerfolds shit like this. of weed. <laughs> yes, think about that. <laughs> So we were in that culture. We were always advocates for legalization and we were stoners on top of that. So when it came time to making music, we were going to write about that because that's who we were. And our belief was always to take people on the roller coaster ride, the peaks and valleys, as artists always speak about. Because if the album is just like this, it's a fucking flat line. So we want to take you through an adventure and the brilliance of mugs help with that in terms of the landscape of music and what he gave us to write over, you know. But in terms of the weed shit, that was the bridge. You know, High Times embracing us, doing parties with us in the early 90s. They did not realize that the hip-hop culture was so connected to the cannabis, right? Hmm. Until we did the How Do You Roll a Blunt High Times issue that we were in. Because High Times was based on the East Coast at the time, and they had never heard of this blunt culture. And we're like, wait a minute, how does that I thought happen? that was a California wait. publication. No, that's an East Coast publication. All our weed that we got from there came from Canada through one of their hookups. And we used their weed to roll the blunts up with. And it was their shit. And, you know, that's when the blunt culture went over into middle America and the West Coast. Because none of them in the middle or even on the West Coast, there was a very small percentage of anyone that knew what that was. Oh, interesting. Until that High Times cover came out or that issue came out. Why was that? Because they didn't have bodegas? We were used to rolling weed with papers and some people use bongs and pipes and shit like that. No one out this way were using blunt wraps unless you had a cousin from the East Coast that brought this over to you and showed yeah. it to you. So it was very minimal on anyone who knew what that was until that High Times cover came out, and that became the bridge between High Times and hip-hop. After that, they had Snoop and Red and Meth and others that would follow, and that sort of built an everlasting bridge there between hip-hop and the cannabis culture because, like, the source was the Bible for hip-hop at a time. Yeah. High Times, High Times yeah. was the Bible for the stoner advocates and, and whatnot. And now, today, Be Real, you have a dispensary and your own line. Six. Six, Six dispensaries. Yeah, right now they're all in California. We're about to expand into other states in the next year. And I nice. can't wait for that to put a Dr. Green Thumbs on the East Coast, like in New York, Boston, Jersey, Philly, yep. all that. You know, I'm looking forward to that because we want to give people the California experience. We want to take our genetics down there, take our brand and let them see what it is. And yeah. Cypress Hill has been called the uh, Grateful Dead of hip-hop because you guys are constantly on tour. How many tours? How many countries? The tour is huge for hip-hop. 
Oh, man. If you can yeah. tour. I don't know that we've ever counted, like, how many countries or anything like that. But when we first started touring, I actually started to question myself. Like, I don't know if I'm built for this or if I'm made for this. You know what I mean? And it was just one of those things where I seen all the guys, B and Mugs, they're having a blast. They're having fun. And I was just like, I don't know if I could do this, you know. But through the years of doing it over and over again, I became a professional at it, you know, and a mainstay. But the touring was, to me, is that's where the hard work comes in. It's not making an album or anything like that. For me, it's traveling the world and actually, you know, different time zones and different foods and cultures. When you're a young man, you know, even as an older guy, that's where the, all the work comes in and that's what you have to be in shape for, not just physically, but mentally ready to go out and do 60 days and, and all that stuff. It's more work than what people would imagine. Yeah. You know, your state of mind is important. Yeah. You know, when you want to go do the work and you're having fun, it's easier to do the work. But when you're stressed the fuck out and doing the daily grind from gig to gig, the in-between parts are the trying times. And we tour a lot. I mean, shit. The first... Was it with Black Sunday? Was that like the first tour? No, we were touring from the first album when we got, uh, I think mm. it was Lollapalooza. That was our first big festival tour. It was around that time. And, you know, the whirlwind began. We're doing two, three, four shows a day, a day off, two, three, four shows a day, a day off. It's a grind. And we built our reputation from that time. It started getting around at us that we had this sort of energy. We need them on the bill, right? Mm -hmm. So we start taking gigs left and right after Lollapalooza. That sort of is what launched our touring career. And I would say that out of the 12 months, whatever, we spent nine on the road. Wow. For the first four or five years. Because we figured we're not going to get radio play. We got to go and play in front of people and win them over in, in this capacity, right? With no matter who we're playing with or going on before or after, we got to win them over. So that sort of took precedent for us just being on the road. We barely saw our families. We barely saw home. And before you know it, Sony was calling us like, hey, we got to pull you guys off the road. We were doing that much road work. We got to pull you off the road because you guys got to make your second album. Right. <laughs> and what's crazy is that our first album had just popped off. Like it was, it caught momentum slow. It took about six, seven months before it actually started popping off. So from the time that it came out, it entered the chart at 200 or 171, something like this. And then it popped off the chart. It dropped in the second or third, fourth week or something like that. And it wasn't until they flipped Kill a Man and everything starts happening. Then it pops back up. And now the album is climbing. Mm -hmm. All this time we're touring, we don't see it. We're not looking at billboards, looking at the bullets or anything that we're just going day to day doing shows. We don't know where we're at. I don't know what city we're in, what day it is. We're just going, right? And so we go in and we record Black Sunday in the matter of about three and a half months. Whereas the first album took us four years to make. Wow. Right? So we craft it, we get it done. And where'd uh, you record it? We recorded maybe two songs in Los Angeles at American Studio, which is where we normally would record. There was too many distractions. So we flipped over and went out to the East Coast. We were in Baby Monster Studio. That was everything to be recording the album in New York. I was living there with mugs for the better part of a month. And I was loving that shit. So it made it easy. What's crazy is that when we released Black Sunday, we were in Europe. 
and this was our first time going to Europe. We hadn't touched it on the first album. We're releasing Black Sunday and we're in Europe. So it took the second album to get us there. But we didn't know what kind of momentum we had because we were doing so many shows, right? And we call in to our families from Europe and shit. And we're like, hey, what's going on? He's like, your Black Sunday album is coming out and there's motherfuckers wrapped around the block at every goddamn store we went to to buy it. Wow. And we're like, what? We couldn't believe any of that shit because we couldn't see it. So, and then by the time we get back and we get our charting, we had Black Sunday at number one on the 200 Billboard top albums. And our first album had climbed all the way up to number five. So we had two albums in the top 200 at one in five at that time. And no other hip hop group had done that. And we didn't realize the momentum we were just like crazy totally fucking dumbstruck by it like what the fuck how long did it take to get back to the states from europe i think we were out for what uh six weeks then right the first one yeah that first run was like i think six weeks six or eight something like that yeah and that shit was new 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 to us because i mean this is our first time in europe we hadn't been so far from home i mean you know doing promotional tours in the united states you're away from home, but you don't feel... Still America. Yes, yeah. it's still America. We spent so much time building our base in Europe. Every time we went out there, it was a six or an eight or a 10-week run. And pretty soon, we start seeing the results of that. Yeah. Like our biggest markets were in like Germany and Spain and the UK and places we just never thought that we'd ever be and that our music would ever hit. Oh, it's man. all new. I know you were suffering with the weed and Europe oh, at that man. time. Oh, man. Boof. <laughs> Boof. We could not find nothing until you got to Amsterdam. Oh, man. Amsterdam. Until you got... It was like this oasis like, for you guys. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> like the Simpsons. Yeah. Day. It was glorious. Cypress did oh. the Simpsons, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did. That was a trip, you know, to get asked to that. I mean... Oh, that's the next level. That's like... What? I mean, we're fans of it. It's a staple, right? Yeah. And, you know, for them to ask us to be in it, we're like, hell yeah. That is the Hall of Fame. Yeah. It's one of the things that, you know, you look back and say, that's forever because yep. they always, in syndication, they'll run that. Same thing with SNL, though. You know, they banned us, but they'll play that episode in syndication. Can't wait for the documentary. Bang, bang. Yeah, you know, we hooked up with our longtime family member, Estevan Orio, and uh, oh, man. and also Jason Goldwatch and Good putting this thing Best together. Visuals. And, you know, Estevan, he spent like 17 years on the road with us, something like this. Yeah. He's wow. our photographer, tour manager, yeah. and DJ. Uh, DJ oh, I didn't times. realize all that. Now, listen, when, he was when, doing everything. When you join Cypress Hill, there's no one hat you're going to wear. You're going to do a bunch of wow. shit. And for him, he traveled with us forever. So he had all the unique photos. We had all had video cameras at the time. So he has some of that unique footage. And we thought, you know, he's so close to us. It only makes sense for him to be the one to put it together. So salute to Estevan Oreo. It's going to be epic. Can't yeah. wait for it. Yes. Man, thank you guys for being here, man. No, man, I want to tell you, uh, congratulations on a great career. I'm a big fan of yours. You know, love talking to you. And every time I see you, you're always so humble of a man and everything. And I really appreciate that from you. As thank big you, as a celebrity man. as you are, brother. Thank you, man. Likewise, man. Family for life. Hey, man. I'll say this. Right there was one time that it was the Rock the Bells pre-party. Remember that? It was uh, when you just put out the project with uh, Damien. Okay. 
and they were doing like a little showcases there and I smoked out with you before you went on stage. Your it <laughs> fucked me up. I'm sorry. That's thanks, why you don't thanks, remember thanks, it? Thanks. <laughs> no, I just the, remembered it just now. I was done so. I was done. Before performing. Yeah. That was a big yeah. mistake. Yeah. We were in the crowd. He was like, and he was about to do the verse and it escaped him. He goes, you know what? I was just smoking backstage with b <laughs> Yep. Everyone That's understood. <laughs> That's a fact. Yo. The crowd's like, what's up? Like, uh, you went into the nah. ring with a professional? I don't, that's crazy. For me, it's drinking. Like, if I drink too much, I'll forget the first word and I'm done. I can't remember anything after the first word. If Send Dog or Bobo ain't picking me up, I lost it. That's why I don't drink before shows. Always after. I'll be at your next show with... <laughs> Jack Daniels. <laughs> all right. Just for some payback. All right. All right. <laughs> hey, man. Love, guys. Love. Good to Love, talk man. to y'all. On the next episode of The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop, we talk to Lee Quinones. I thought I had discovered graffiti in 1974 at 14 years old, but I obviously saw it way before in 1972, traveling the trains. And I was always curious, like, what's all these letters? What's all these colors? And it was very in its infancy at that time, mainly a lot of names. But then I started noticing these really ornamented masterpieces coming out. And I was like, wow, what is that? Who is that? Why is that? From Spotify, the executive producers are Gina Delvac and Jason Rodriguez, with additional production support from Leslie Guam and Andrea Salenzi. And special thanks to Courtney Holt, Jessica Dow, and everyone at Spotify who helped the bridge come to life. From Mass Appeal, the executive producers are myself, Nas, Peter Bittenbender, Jenya Meggs. Lead producer is Medina Prawana, and associate producer is Serge Jabrizia. Our writer is Gabe Alvarez. Samara Langer and Cliff Cristofaro are our editors. Thanks for listening.